So I have something a little different for you today. I have a topical teaching. Now, the topic is very biblical, maybe more biblical than you think. And you will often find yourself when dealing with this topic of suffering, particularly why God's people suffer, you may often find yourself saying, why, Lord? How long, O Lord? When is this going to end, Lord? But what about... Now, you may know the answers biblically to some extent, but you may not have the truth within you when you're enduring it. You see, when you're enduring suffering, it's very challenging, whether you have the Holy Spirit or not. Now, all people, whether you believe in Jesus Christ, whether you're born again, whether you're not, all people, humanity will suffer to some extent. It's the inevitable result of living in a fallen world. And all people will ask why, but many people seek for answers to suffering, particularly in philosophy. A lot of secular philosophy where people will say, why is this suffering? And many will say in the secular world, if you're God, Christian, if your God is so good, why is there suffering? And many approach this in this philosophical mindset, such as, a man by the name of David Hume, which was an 18th century philosopher. And he said this, if God is all-powerful, he can stop suffering. He said if God is all-loving, he would stop suffering. Suffering and evil exist, therefore God is not all-powerful, and God is not all-loving, or he does not exist at all. There are many in our day and age who would attribute suffering, like everything else in life, to simply chance no real meaning, there's no real purpose behind anything. And there are some extremes that adopt what's called a docetic view, where suffering is just an illusion. For example, Christian science, it's a cult founded by Mary Baker Eddy, and also a lot of the Middle East, uh, not Middle Eastern, the New Age Eastern religions will adapt this belief that suffering is merely an illusion. Well, you know, as most know, that suffering is very, very real. Most people know that, and because it's real, and because we feel it, and because many understand that it is part of life, not understanding the why behind it, but the what behind it, they will adapt what's called a hedonistic approach. Because I'm suffering, I'm going to get as much pleasure to drown out the pain, and many of this encompasses immoral, sinful practices. And that often leads to more suffering. So humanistic philosophy will go down many rabbit trails, as secular humanism often does, to try and figure out and how to deal with this topic of, of suffering. But even Christians, too, can be persuaded by the worldviews of the world, and many Christians can be persuaded by their emotions and their feelings. But in today's teaching, we're going to approach this biblically. Now, it's a difficult question, a common question for many, but when you open up the pages of Scripture, it's not that difficult. It's not that difficult. We'll see. And you may be surprised to know what the Bible says about suffering. You may be surprised to know of the, 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 the doctrine of, of suffering here for people of all kinds, but particularly for the Christian. It's very biblical, and might I add, very purposeful. 
So we're going to look at why Christians suffer, what suffering is meant to produce, and how to approach suffering. And my intent here is to bring understanding, to bring comfort, and even encouragement. Now, why is there suffering, right? If you're a Christian, you probably know the answer. The short answer is suffering is the result of sin. Suffering is from the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Suffering was not part of God's original design, as God created everything good, Genesis 1.31. And suffering, as Vito prayed this morning, will cease. Suffering will cease in the new heavens and the new earth. So suffering is a consequence of sin. And mankind chose to disobey God, and we've been suffering ever since in some form of another. Now, Romans 5.12, just, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And the inevitable result of this sin is death. But in the interim, physical death there is plenty of suffering, and even creation feels the effect of sin in Romans 8, 22. So the world, when it sees it's all kinds of pain, sickness, suffering, and subsequent evil, simply put, for today, suffering is a cause of sin. But the question we're going to ask is, why do God's people suffer? Well, part of the human race, that, that's a good answer. We can go in a Thursday night question and get a multiple choice on that. Part of the human race, they're fallen, yes. But there's particular purpose for God's people. And many will ask, gee, why do God's people suffer so much? Because becoming a Christian does not insulate us from the reality of suffering, affliction, trial, tribulation. I'm putting all of those here together under the banner of suffering. Now, the health and wealth gospel has been very influential on the minds of the body of Christ and even the unbelievers. And many will say that if you're suffering, it's probably your fault. It's probably due to sin, and it very well can be. But many would say it's because you don't have enough faith. That's still happening in this day and age. You're suffering because you do not have enough faith. Reminds me of Job's three friends. They were, they were forerunners to the prosperity gospel. And, you know, they said to Job, there's surely a reason why this man is suffering. Now, there must be a consequence here for something you did. And Job, most often when we think of biblical suffering, we go to the book of Job. And Job wrestled with this question that why was he suffering to the extent that he was? He was blameless. He was upright. You see, Job was not suffering because of his sin. And God allowed him to lose just about everything, his property, his family's health. There was restoration. But knowing that Job was upright, not understanding him, he would ask God as well, why? Now, very often, when we go through suffering, we will ask that question, why? And I asked one of the brothers this morning, why do we suffer? And you had, you had an answer. And Job's friend's theology was not entirely wrong. 
You can suffer called consequential suffering for disobedience to God and sin. Now, suffering due to sin, making the wrong choices, you can. Israel suffered quite a bit in the Old Testament when they disobeyed God. They disobeyed the Mosaic Covenant. Samson suffered for his choices for sin. The same could be said for Solomon. So, suffering can be the cause of foolish choices and disobedience. And there's something about that aspect of suffering that we can kind of get our hands around. We can actually maybe even feel comforted to say, that person is suffering because of what they did. See, we can understand that, and even us. But there are also the mysteries of suffering. But to continue, we know that God will not be mocked whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. But we see in Proverbs suffering due to laziness, due to adultery, due to foolishness, due to all kinds of reasons why God's people can suffer. Now, when Job asked Yahweh, why? Why the suffering? What was the answer that he got? You see, you can go through 42 chapters of Job, and you could encompass a lot of principles as to why. But you see, Job didn't get a direct answer there. When he asked Yahweh, Yahweh answered Job by saying, where were you? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? Job 38.4. Direct answer was not given. But looking back, particularly for Job, that's a bit of a mystery. But we do know Job's suffering was not a consequence for particular sin or direct sin. Job did come to a greater knowledge of God through that situation. And Job is an example for us. But biblical suffering does not begin and end in the book of Job. We see this quite common in the New Testament. Look at the Apostle Paul. Part of Paul's calling was that he would suffer for the name of Christ. We see it in the disciples. We see it in the apostles. We see it in the Old Testament with Moses. We see it with Jeremiah, with Joseph. Suffering in a not-so-direct way. Some mystery behind the why, particularly when they were going through it. But it doesn't, suffering doesn't begin biblically with Job, though the prophets or the apostles, and certainly our Savior Jesus Christ. It's but for you and me as well. It's part of our calling. Philippians 1.29, For you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf. Now, when we pursue this suffering throughout Scripture and we start to go into the New Testament, the old and new, and we start to peel this onion a little bit, we see that there's much suffering not because of sin. There's much suffering not because we don't have faith, but because we do have faith. There's much suffering for obedience as well. Now, we must understand when it comes to suffering, you could simply suffer for your union and your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Consider Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Now, there's persecution, there's physical, there's emotional suffering, there's physical affliction that we see. And you look at the book of Acts, because of their obedience... 
Consider how much persecution, how much suffering Paul, Peter, and the disciples went through. And it's no surprise. In Acts 14, 21, Paul writes, After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, praise God, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations, we must enter in the kingdom of God. You see, your union with Christ, your allegiance with Christ, you are called not only to believe, but to some extent, not all the time, to suffer on his behalf. Romans 8, 17. And if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, indeed, if we suffer for him, so that we may be glorified with him. Suffering has a present uh, a present purpose, and it has eternal purpose as well. Suffering, Christian, for you and me, is not strange, and it should be expected. Consider Jesus' words in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We're going to use tribulation under that, that banner of suffering. But take courage, I've overcome the world. In the world you will have affliction. The psalmist writes in Psalm 34, 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The amount of scripture dealing with this topic of suffering is astounding. And through God's infinite wisdom, we don't always understand what we, when we're dealing with something. But in God's infinite wisdom, we see it in the pictures in the pages of scriptures, in the images given, in the word of God. And we see very often how it corresponds with us. We don't have the infinite wisdom. So therefore, when we deal with this, one of the things we must do is to walk in faith. But God has ordained purpose, purpose for his people. And we will look at some of them. You may be surprised by what the purpose is. You may be strengthened by the purpose, blessed, and encourages. Now, there are multiple reasons as to why God's people suffer. I cannot go through them all. There's just too many. But quickly, suffering can be a tool for sanctification. Suffering can be a tool for holiness. Suffering can conform us to the image of Christ. It will, it is meant to. There are many reasons as to why. But today we look at three specifically. So if you do have your Bibles, we'll be in three texts, not deep expositions, just extracting a couple of things. The first one will be 1 Peter 3.7, and that's in page 1211. I'll give you some time to get there. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, page 12, 11. The second one will be 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, and that's on page 1163. So I'll go over that again. The first one will be on page 12, 11. The second one in your pew Bible, page 1163. And the last one will be 2 Corinthians 1, Verses 3 to 7, and that's on 1155. Hopefully, you could follow along with me with that. But what I first want to look at is this relationship between suffering and faith. A relationship here, suffering and faith. How suffering proves our faith, 
refines our faith and gives us a resilient faith. The first, the first one, let's look at 1 Peter. I'm going to read the text nice and slow, and then we'll just look at it briefly. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We will focus on 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to praise glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here are people in this epistle who are dealing with distressed, they're distressed over trials, dealing with persecution. But they've been born again to a living hope, and that's really why they're dealing with this. And Paul's writing that there is a joy that comes with this salvation. And through faith, I would argue a faith given to them, they are shielded. They are protected. And they have an inheritance that will be reserved for them undefiled in heaven. Now, the new birth, to be born again to a living hope, is predicated upon faith. Faith is the beginning aspect, one of the key aspects to this. And it's crucial to the new birth. And it's a firm conviction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not just any kind of faith. A firm conviction on the biblical person of Jesus Christ. His work, his person, his death, might I say, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things unseen. Now, Peter's saying here, the culmination of your faith will result in praise, glory, and honor. But we see something here, right in verse 6 into 7. They're distressed by various trials, suffering, so that. So that is a purpose clause. Why are they distressed? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result praise and glory at the revelation of Christ. The imagery here of fire is this tribulation. So that the proof of your faith, suffering comes to believers to decipher their faith, to prove their faith, to refine it. Now we see genuine the ESV would call this faith so that the tested genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. You will suffer because your faith needs to be proved. It needs to be purified and refined. But first thing first, is it a true faith? We see here the proof as opposed to a counterfeit faith. It's very interesting. We see Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, 5, and 6. We see the difference when a person temporarily believes the gospel, but later falls away. Suffering, tribulation, affliction reveals the authentic from the counterfeit, the real from the faith, fake when it comes to faith. 
The parable of the sower captures this. Now the sower sows the seed on rocky soil and it quickly sprouts. But then it died for lack of root. And Christ would go on to explain that this portion of the parable corresponds to one who hears the word immediately, receives it with joy, but it has no root. And therefore, it does not endure when tribulation, suffering, or affliction comes. It's scorched away. Now, just as you've been born again to a living hope, as a child of God, your faith becomes matured. You get to the place of an adolescent. You don't stay a child. You don't stay a baby in Christ for long. You become a baby, you get adolescent, and then you get to adulthood, if you will. There's a maturity that goes along with this. Now, until faith finds its completion in glorification. Now, the tested genuineness of your faith is not just about Peter's day, It's not just about the New Testament. We see Israel in the Old as God was refining Israel in Isaiah 48.10. Behold, I refine you, but not as silver. I have tested you with the furnace of affliction. So all of God's people will incur infliction for the proof of their faith. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 5. Be sober in spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But Peter says this. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren in the world. In order to resist him firm in the faith, that faith must be strong. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, there is an establishment here. There is a strengthening of the faith. Now, sufferings will vary in variety and certainly in frequency. We don't always suffer. But we suffer and have this affliction for the proof of our faith. Secondly, to refine our faith, to mature our faith, and to have this resilient faith. We see that in a very famous passage, James. James chapter chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, brethren, when, when you encounter various trials. We're putting suffering, affliction, tribulation, trial in the same category. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces endurance steadfastness, the New King James would say, a patience. And let the endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. A maturity, a resiliency in the body of Christ. To resist Satan, to be who God's called you to be, you have to go through affliction for the proof and refining of your faith. All right, the second one. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. Suffering can produce humility and a greater dependence on God. Suffering can produce a humility and a greater dependence on God. It's on page 1163 in your pew Bible, and I'm going to read it now. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, this is Paul speaking, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. 
Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it may leave. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfect, perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with my weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. That's amazing. That is an amazing sentiment, amazing reality that Paul dealt with. But we see that this thorn in the flesh, we do not know what it was. But Paul was given revelation. Paul was elevated spiritually. And there was the possibility of conceitedness, of pride happening. So what was the intent of this thorn in the flesh to keep me from being conceited? Now, conceit, pride can often lead to self-sufficiency. And sometimes our Christianity, we can put on cruise control, automatic pilot, if you will. But, and just in this text, as Job, Satan was used by God. That's something also to think about. Satan was used by God and Job here as well. And God would accomplish his purposes. Now, Paul's initial response here was, Lord, heal me. Heal me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying for healing. James tells us, James 5.13, any of you suffering, let him pray. You, sh- you could always pray for healing. But you cannot demand or decree healing, as many do. And we see this again in this health and wealth prosperity. you got to decree that healing. you got to get that healing. This was not the intent here. Paul was going to be ministered to without getting the healing. And it reminds me of the passage in John. John 9, 1-3, where Jesus did perform a healing. But I'm going to show you what we we see here. When Jesus saw that blind man and he passed by and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it his parents? Is that why he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God may be displayed. Now, there were healings in the New Testament and Jesus that the works of God wouldn't be displayed. But I want you to consider in the case of Paul, in the case of many, the works of God are displayed not when there's healing. A quote from the Reformation Study Bible on this works of God being displayed. Some of our sufferings like the trials of Job are for God's glory, either through our resulting refinement or through a spectacular healing as in a present cause. God's purpose is not only always presently known to us, but we have God's assurance that his purpose is good. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now we see the works of God being manifested in someone like Joni Erickson Tata. How many of you know who Joni Erickson Tata is? Joni Erickson Tata has been in a wheelchair for over 50 years. Now, she suffered an accident. And when the accident came, she went to all the healing 
all the revivals, all the places, and she kept going and going and going, and she started to get frustrated. She started to get angry at God. This is her own words. But over a period of time, she saw what God did with her. So the works of God may be displayed. That thorn in her flesh was never taken away. And when Paul said, Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you. When Jesus, when the Lord said that, for my power is made perfect in your weakness, she is a model of that. What the Lord has done through this woman is spectacular because she now understands the purpose of God and she's living for the glory of God. She is someone who understands that the grace of God is sufficient. See, we could say, pray, take this away from me. And if God so desires, he will. He can heal. But God uses suffering and affliction because there's a paradox here what we see. Human weakness gives way to God's power. When I am weak, I am strong. And we start to develop a reliance upon God. I was talking to Sonia the other day, one of our sisters in the congregation. She's been sidelined with various afflictions, three, since December. And it was one after the other. She landed in the hospital in December for gallbladder. The second thing, after she got out of the hospital, she gets the flu And now she's been dealing with a meniscus situation. So I spoke to her, and and we had a long conversation. And Sonia told me, when this all happened, these are her words, I really had this upon my heart. I felt the Lord was telling me, Sonia, me first. There's just too many distractions. And this is what she told me. She said, I've never been closer to God through this time, through these afflictions. And this has been... And ask her if you don't believe me, the, the four greatest months of my life. That's what she said. You see, suffering can come not just because maybe we have pride, but we get to this self-sufficient complacency in the Christian life, and we can easily get distracted, and we easily do. We're easily prone to wander. And God will send affliction and pain maybe in our way, not all the time, But we see in the text and we see it in the lives of many that it happens. Say what you want about C.S. Lewis, like him, dislike him. There's a quote that I think he's very, very right on point here. And here's the quote. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And very often suffering and pain is God's megaphone for even his people. Consider the psalmist when you deal with afflictions. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. God's grace is sufficient for us. And God's grace will even stop us and put us to a place where we must bend our knee and rely upon God. And not have any sort of self-sufficiency. So Paul's first admonition, Lord, take this away. What's Paul's resolve at the end of the text? His response, therefore, I will boast more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. God's ways are higher than our ways. He's infinite. God has a way of ministering to us. The third one, 
2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 7. It's on page 1155. Suffering comes to Christians to produce compassion. Suffering comes to us so that we may comfort others. When we receive the comfort that our Heavenly Father gives us through our situations. And I'm sure you could relate to this very much. 2 Corinthians, I'll read from start of verse 3. Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Because if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in patient enduring of the same sufferings in which we suffer. And our hope for you, firmly grounded, knowing that you are sharers of the sufferings, so also you share in the comfort. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands and feet of the Lord. We are God's representation on the earth. The Lord is not physically here. Jesus is not physically here to minister. How many times do we see one another in the New Testament? Ministering to one another in the local body. But we also are called to minister to this sin-suffering world as well. Now, I have known many people who have come out of some really, quote-unquote, tough times. And the Lord has used them to minister to those who are going through those tough times. I've known people. I've known people who were bound by drugs, who the Lord took away, and not only took them away to minister, he's put them in the ministry. He put them in California to become pastors. Quite, quite a lot of these scenarios I know that you have gone through sufferings. And I know that some of you can minister like no one else to the person who's dealing with what you dealt with. Don't ever waste the suffering. God, as we see in this text, gives a, he comforts us so that we may comfort others as well. Christian, you are called to suffer to some extent. How do you deal with with this suffering. In light of what we see in the Bible and in light of what we see in eternity, in light of Vito's prayer, in light of Revelation, do you see suffering in light of eternity? Do you see suffering is not pleasant but purposeful? Do you see it? Do you understand the grace of God, that God is not off out somewhere, out to lunch, for lack of a better term? You see that God is not just sitting there and saying, I hope you get through it. In many instances, God is ordaining this because it has purpose. And part of our goal in this Christian life is being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. As he suffered, to some extent, we will suffer. But let's look at suffering in light of eternity as we get ready to close. And it will take on, I believe, a new perspective. 
Paul writes in Romans 8.18, the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to what is to come, a future glory. Now, Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 4.17, and he goes from the lesser to the greater. How much greater? 2 Corinthians 4.17, speaking of the very real, the very afflicting issues that we deal with, very real, very distressing, tough, tough things. Paul considers them in light of the panorama of eternity, God's big picture, God's grand mosaic. He says this, momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Praise God. Do you understand that God is omniscient? We may have to remind ourselves. Do we understand God is sovereign? Do we understand, we, do, we, do we listen to a class and get it? Or do we get it? Is it in our heart? Is it in our mind? God loves his people. God is for his people. God is cultivating Christ-likeness in his people. Now, the suffering as we see is not difficult to understand it's not hard to find. It can be hard to accept. When we're going through it, we often become confused. And it's if, why God have you abandoned us? God has not abandoned us. Although we may not verbalize it. We may get that feeling in us. Lord, is this just random? Where are you? Now, understand it's pur- purposeful. God is for you, Christian. God loves you more than anybody loves you. And God will perfect all things concerning you. He who began a good work in you, what? Will see it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Understand that. And if we're called for salvation, as Philippians 1.29 spoke of, I'm going to read that again, part of our calling. For you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer on his behalf. You're called to share in the glory of Christ. We're called to share in salvation. We're called to share in the sufferings of Christ. God is in the business of conforming us to his image, the image of his son. Now, the ultimate suffering servant, took upon the great suffering for you. Whatever you have, everybody's got something. It's not strange. As we see, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. There will be affliction. You're not weird. You're not strange. It can come from sin, but most often it doesn't come. It can come from disobedience, but most often it comes because you're obedient. Everybody's got something. But understand what Jesus Christ has done. The suffering servant. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. Christ left us an example. The suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. Never, never, ever gets old. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Speaking of healing, Christ removed the penalty of death, eternal death. And I know some of you are suffering here with physical affliction particularly. You understand, because of what Christ done on the last day, on the last day, you will be raised up. And you will have a glorified body in the glorified state. For the momentary light affliction is producing us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. And suffering will cease for Christians in the new heavens. Suffering will cease for those who have been born again to a living hope. Suffering will cease for those who have made the suffering servant their Savior. Suffering will cease for those who exchange their filthy garments of unrighteousness and all the good deeds and all the religion for the righteousness of Christ by faith alone, through grace alone. Suffering will cease for those who have the Spirit of God in them, who are sealed with the Spirit. But suffering will not cease for those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you do not believe in Christ, you will not only suffer on this side of eternity, but a far greater suffering awaits you. Please, please, he who has ears, he or she who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. For you, Christian, you will have to develop your faith. You will have to have a self-reliance upon God. All good things. It's for our benefit. And he gives us a comfort so that we may be his hands and feet and body in the world. Suffering is not in vain, but is purposeful. May we embrace it. May we be blessed. And may we go forth in the image of Christ. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is instructive, Lord. Your word sheds light, Lord. Your word, Lord, conforms us. Your spirit conforms us to what you've called us to be. To take on the image of your son. And Father, in a dying, suffering, sin-laden world, we ought to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We ought to be light. We ought to be salt. We ought to be messengers of the good news, Lord. And Father, we have purpose on this side of eternity, Lord. And Father, we eagerly await our purposes on the other side when we will see your son face to face. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.